Grab your Bibles, Zephaniah chapter 2 this evening. We're going to try to take the whole chapter tonight. I think we can do it. As we look at uh, the judgment of God from Judah to the nations, that's the title of it tonight, from Judah to the nations, that we looked at God's judgment against Judah in chapter 1, and uh, how all-encompassing that was, wasn't it? He was going to give the city the centers of commerce, the centers of worship. He was going to get the hill folk and the city folk. He was going to get the uh, those who worship false gods and those who worship no gods and those who turn back from worshiping God. And now in chapter 2, he's going to spread out this judgment to other nations as well, beginning in Judah and then going out from there. Zephaniah chapter 2, if you're there, let's stand together as we read the scriptures this evening. We're going to read the whole chapter, beginning at verse number 1. The Bible says, Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation, not desired. Before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth which have wrought his judgment, and seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be, ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. Woe unto the inhabitants of the sea coast, the nation of the Cherethites. Uh, I actually said that wrong. I'll get to that later. Sorry about that. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will even destroy thee, that there shall be no inhabitant. And the sea coast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds, for flocks. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon, and the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening. For the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom, and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah. Even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation, the residue of my people shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This shall they have for their pride, because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship him, every one from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. Ye Ethiopians also, ye shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north, and destroy Assyria, and will make Nineveh a desolation, and dry like a wilderness, and flocks shall lie down in the midst of her. All the beasts of the nations, both the cormorant and the bittern, shall lodge in the upper lintels of it. Their voice shall sing in the windows, and desolation shall be in the thresholds, for he shall uncover the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. How is she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. Father, bless your word as it goes out this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. And you can be seated. So tonight will be judgment from Judah to the nations around her. Let's start back in verse number one. Gather yourselves together, yea, 
Gather together, O nation, not desired. Having just declared the coming judgment, the prophet now tells them to gather themselves together. This is a call for national repentance. Isn't that amazing? God has pronounced judgment in chapter 1. Fierce judgment. Here in the first thing we see in chapter 2 is a call to repent. In other words, God's saying, it's not my will to punish my people. It's not something I desire to do. I desire repentance. Gather yourselves together before the judgment comes and repent. Of course, we know that they failed to do so. And they persist in their evil right up to the time of judgment. That's what we do. We, we call men and women to repent, don't we? Even today with the gospel, it's a call to repent. It goes out all over this land. People hear the call right up until the time they pass away and they face the judgment of God. Very few people in America today can say they didn't know the gospel. They didn't have a chance to be saved. They didn't have a chance to hear repent. There are places where they don't get that opportunity. You realize there are places in this world where people live their whole lives, they die, and they never hear the name Jesus. Here in America, we're so blessed. But think about our judgment when the time comes to judge Americans. We have so much access to the gospel, and yet we're so uninterested in it. When he calls them a nation not desired, he's calling them a shameless nation, an unlovely nation, a nation nobody wants to emulate. He's saying, oh, nation that nobody wants to be, nobody wants to be like you, Israel. Judah, nobody wants to be like you. You're so haughty, you think so much of yourself. Verse 2, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass, as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. This is tied to verse 1. Gather together before that time comes. Before these things come to pass, seek the Lord. Repent and turn back to him. This is what God wants from his people. He wants repentance. He wants genuine, heartfelt repentance. He doesn't take pleasure in their destruction. Verse 3, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment, that is, earned his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. While the call is to national repentance, God has his elect who, he, who will hear and will hearken to his voice. Isn't that amazing? God always has his people, doesn't he? As he's calling out to the nation of Israel, repent, repent, gather yourselves together and repent. By and large, did the nation repent? No. But there were still godly people among those who refused to repent. Just like with the ark, right? God saved, there was, there was righteous Noah who brought his family along. God has people. As we go around the world today, or you know, we hear the gospels preached around the world today, or we preach the gospel here in America, it can be discouraging. Is anybody listening? Does anybody care? They just pass by. They ignore you. They mock you. They ridicule you. the message you're giving. Do they, does it do any good to go out and preach the gospel? Yes, because God has His people. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. What a great passage that is, isn't it? See, so many people just walk by and ignore us when we're preaching. Right, but his sheep hear his voice. Well, that's, a, that's a precious promise that 
all of our preaching will not be vain on the day of judgment. You know why? Because his sheep hear his voice and they follow him and he gives them eternal life. I think of godly young men like Daniel. Daniel was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, taken to Babylon. And while he was taken to Babylon, while he never got to see Jerusalem again, Daniel lived a pretty comfortable life in Babylon, for the most part, barring a few things like uh, being thrown in the lion's den. He lived a pretty comfortable life. He got into the higher echelons of government. He was trusted and trustworthy, and you could say he was hid in the day of the Lord's anger. A lot of people were killed. A lot of people were taken slaves, and a lot of people were tortured and worked relentlessly. Daniel was, an, Daniel was a righteous man. And though he was part of the sweeping away of judgment, God was merciful to him as an individual. Why? Because his heart was right. And you and I, we may get caught up in the judgments that God has against America. We may, we may lose everything, but you know what? Those whose hearts are right with God, he will see them through even his judgment on the wicked. It's not going to come near. You see, how, how do you know that, Pastor? Let me, give you, let, me, let me give you some examples. How about I name some guys like Noah? How about Lot? Listen, Lot wasn't a great guy, but he did get delivered by his, his righteousness, didn't he? He was, he, his heart was right with God, though he had compromised. He delivered just himself, nobody else. But he was taken by the hand out of the city before judgment came. We can go on and on with people who face the judgment of God, and yet God protected them. God saw them through it. Daniel being another one, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three more names of people whose hearts were right with God, and God protected them. God saw them through. Men like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who easily could have been killed in the captivity, were yet protected by God and allowed to prophesy and to, to speak. What I'm saying is, while God may judge corporately, God judges the heart individually. You understand what I'm saying? Make sure your heart's right with God. America's going to do what America's going to do. Make sure you're right with God. Because God's going to judge us individually. He's not going to punish his people. If we're not, you know, if our, if our, obviously if we're out in the world, you know, living it up with the world, we're going to fall under the judgment. That's, that's the whole point of First uh, John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Love not the world. Why? Because the, the world's passing away. And those who love the world will pass away with the world. Right? That's not God saying, oh, I don't want you to have any fun. I'm taking away all your fun. You've got to have all these rules. You can't have any... I remember uh, in youth group, some kids saying, God doesn't want us to have any fun. No, God doesn't want us to perish with the world. And if we love the world, it's evidence the love of the Father is not in us. Make sure our hearts are right with God. Because God is already judging America. You want to be protected? Make sure you're walking with God. You know who didn't die in the flood? Enoch. Enoch, he didn't die in the flood. Methuselah. I believe the flood came the year he died. He didn't, he didn't die in the flood. God protects those who walk with him, those whose hearts are right towards him. 
Many others survived the assault and the captivity and returned to rebuild the temple. We saw that in the last book we looked at. People who had seen the old temple, now they returned to rebuild the new temple. Listen, God delights in repentance. Turn to Psalm 51, verse 17. What a great verse this is. Psalm 51, 17. This is an important verse just for us to remember. Psalm 51, verse 17. The Bible says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. This is coming from a man who had just committed adultery and then murdered the lady's husband. And what does he tell God? You'll not despise a broken and a contrite heart. Sometimes I think we get into our heads. I think a, a, really a big problem I think that we have as people, and maybe you're better than me, I don't know, but there's been times in my life where I sin, right? And that keeps me from the Lord. I don't want to pray because I just sin. What good is my prayer? Well, I'm not going to read my Bible. I don't, it's that guilty. I'm holding on to that guilt, Right? That's where we should go with our sin, is to the Lord. We should go to the Word of God. We should go to prayer, and we should confess. We should have a broken heart over our sin. It's true, God is not interested. If we're going to walk in sin and live in sin and still read our Bible and still pray, He's not interested in those prayers. But when we humble ourselves and we confess our sins, well, those are the kind of prayers that Jesus loves to answer. Because he knows our frame. He knows we're but dust. He knows we're sinful creatures. Listen, Christian, God has set his love on you. God has set his love on you. He loves you. When you sin, you run back to the one who loves you. To the one who died for that sin. The one who mediates for you and me. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He lives to intercede for us. What does an intercessor do? Right? If we, what's his job if we never sin? <laughs> right? He intercedes because we sin. Not only do we have an intercessor, but we have an intercessor who knows our weaknesses. He is himself human. Though without the curse, though without sin... He knows our weakness. He knows us. He sympathizes with us. That's why we're going to come boldly before the throne of grace. Not timidly. Boldly. Why? Because he knows us. He sympathizes with us. He loves us. God does not want to punish us. I think I mentioned this last week or maybe on a Sunday. God is not sitting in heaven hoping we mess up. So he can crush us under his disciplining hand. That's not what he's doing. That's not what he's doing. He wants repentance. He wants brokenness and humility. And when we do that, when we humble ourselves, even in our sinful condition, he doesn't despise us. He welcomes us back again. Picture the prodigal son, right? Comes back to the father. 
And the father puts the ring on him, puts the robe on him, kills the fatted calf, throws a big... That's God every time we sin and humble ourselves and come back. It's a celebration over and over and over. Because God, he doesn't want estrangement from us. He set his love on us. He doesn't want distance from us. Right? He died to draw near to us. Okay? He wants humility and he wants honesty and confession. That's all God wants. So what do you do when you sin? You humble yourself and you go to the one person in this universe who will not judge you for that sin. But if you're contrite, he will forgive you of that sin. Isn't that wonderful? He'll never cast you away. Nobody comes to God in humble contrition, confession, and God goes, I'm tired of this. I've had it. That's the ninth time you've done this. I'm not going to. We might do that with each other, but God never does that. Every time we confess our sins, every time we humble ourselves, he says, welcome back. Well, I've been waiting for you to come back. That's what he wants. He wants repentance. He wants humility. God will never look down upon the humbling heart. These are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. When we humble ourselves and turn to him and recognize our sin, God delights in that. It's an acceptable offering to him. Uh, God does not pour his wrath on that in which he delights. Isn't that wonderful? God does not pour his wrath upon that which he delights. And by the way, if you're saved tonight, you're in Christ Jesus. That means God will never pour his wrath upon you because you're in Christ. And he delights in Christ. That's why we're saved. We're imputed the righteousness of Christ. So you say, oh, how does God see us as righteous? Because he sees Jesus as righteous. That's why we've got to be careful misapplying scripture. You hear a Christian say, oh, all my righteousness is like filthy rags. No, no. The unbeliever's righteousness is like their self-righteousness. Is, but our righteousness comes from our new nature in Christ. God delights in our righteousness. God delights when we read the Bible. God delights when we fellowship with him in prayer. God delights when we're in the fellowship of the saints. God delights when we're evangelizing. God delights when we're helping the poor. God delights when we're loving one another. God delights when we're helping one another. Because that is, that is his nature at work within us, working itself out of us. God delights in that. The Father delights in the Son. Therefore, everyone joined to the Son is safe from the wrath of God the Father. Those who are truly Christ's are eternally secure. But they don't live in continual sin. They don't use eternal security as a cover for wickedness. Watch out for that. There is a Christianity today that will use eternal security as a cloak for sin. Grace is not given to us that we may sin more. Grace is given to us because we sin. Verse 4. I'm sorry, go back to our text. Verse number 4, Zephaniah 2. Verse number 4. The Bible says, For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. So now we move into the nations around Judah that will face judgment. They'll have to watch each of these powerful nations fall as the invaders get closer and closer to them. Think about that. These are nations right around Judah. 
And God says, as the invaders coming for you, as they make their way towards you, you're going to watch these other nations fall in succession like dominoes. And you're going to know that your judgment is coming. Gaza will be forsaken. The powerful Philistine empire that so threatened Israel would be forsaken to fall before their enemies. He says, don't seek their help because they've been forsaken by God and there's none to help them. There's none to help them. Israel used to have a habit of making alliances with pagan nations. And God's saying, it's, it's no use. I've forsaken them as well. They're, they're not going to help you. I've heard a story that when Titus returned to Rome after his destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there's a big parade thrown in his honor. And that he opened, I, I don't have the source on it, but I've heard the story that he opened the speech with, what reward is there in destroying a people forsaken by their God? In other words, no one came to their defense. They were completely forsaken and given over. There is no hand that can stop the judgment of God. When God has forsaken a people, there is none to help them. There is none to come to their defense. The Philistines will be destroyed. Ashkelon will be a desolation with nothing left behind. They will drive out the dwellers of Ashdod from their land, and Ekron will be rooted up. Their destruction will be so thorough, it will be as if they were never there. That's what rooted up means. I mean, I mean plucked up by the roots. There will be no evidence they were ever there. Verse 5. Woe unto the inhabitants of the seacoast. The nation of the... I'm going to say it wrong again until I get to that part of my notes. The Cherethites. I think it might be Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will even destroy thee, but there should be no inhabitant. This woe is the inhabitants of the seacoast. It's a reference to the Philistines, also called the, the Cherethites. I think I put an actual, I put it in my notes. Maybe I didn't. I should have. We'll just call them the Cherethites. How about that? And I know that's, it's not what it appears to be in the pronunciation, but we'll, we'll move on. Uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 11. I really should put the correct pronunciation in there. First Samuel 30, verse 11. And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he didn't eat and they made him drink water and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. When he had eaten, his spirit came again to him for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. And David said unto, the, unto him, to whom belongest thou? And whence art thou? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to the Malachite. And my master left me because three days agone I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites and upon the coast which belonged to Judah and upon the south of Caleb. We buried or he burned Ziklag with fire. So the Cherethites inhabited the seacoast belonging to Judah, which is why I think our text it calls them the inhabitants of the seacoast. It was not their land rightfully, but they inhabited the area. Go back to our text. So God would destroy the land of Canaan, something that Israel should have done, which would have kept them from this idolatry in the first place. Think about that. God's going to uproot the Canaanites, 
The very thing Israel was commanded to do, wasn't it? But they failed. They left some behind. And what did they do? They worshiped their gods. They brought their gods and worshiped them within the temple of the one true God. The very thing that God had said in the law of Moses, don't worship them. Just utterly destroy them so you don't learn their ways. You don't learn their gods. And yet Israel failed. That's what brought about this very judgment we're looking at. Verse 6. And the seacoast shall uh, be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks. The destruction of the Philistines would be so complete there would be no cities built, no goods would be stored there, no merchants doing business. All there would be would be a few cottages for shepherds and places for sheep. Verse 7. And the, and the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon, and the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening. For the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. The remnant of Israel in later times would inhabit the seacoast where the Philistines once lived. While God would wipe out his enemies, he would show mercy to his people. This is fulfilled in the time of the Maccabees. In Acts 8.26, we see the Jews inhabited this area at that time. God would visit his people and turn away their captivity. What a wonderful promise in the middle of all this prophecy of coming judgment and the harshness that we see in the severity, I shouldn't say harshness, the severity of God's judgment. And right in the middle of it, I'm going to turn back your captivity. It's not going to be permanent. It's not going to be forever. This sets God's covenant people apart from all the other nations. Well, God's going to uproot the Philistines. He'll turn back the captivity of his people. While he makes their cities desolate, he'll restore his people once again. Verse 8. I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Moab and Ammon were descendants of Lot through incest with his daughters. They had reproached the people of Israel. God took the reproaches against his people as reproaches against himself. And he will exact vengeance. And by the way, we see a great contrast, don't we? We read earlier from Psalms how God delights in the contrite heart, the humble heart. Those are sacrifices acceptable to God. And then we see the opposite don't here, don't we? We see these, these other people, Ammon and Moab, how they lifted themselves up, how they reproached God's people. They lifted themselves up against the Lord's people. We see this pride in these people. God hates pride. God hates pride. As much as God loves humility, God hates pride. As much as God will look kindly upon a humble heart, a contrite heart, he will bring down the heart of the proud and the haughty. Verse 9, Therefore as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom, and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation, the residue of my people that shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. God swears by himself, there's nothing greater you can swear by if you're God than, than by yourself. He demonstrates here the red hotness of his anger towards them. As I live, say, by, put my name on it, put my throne upon it, I will destroy these people. Moab and Ammon will be as Sodom and Gomorrah. Their father Lot was rescued from Sodom, but there'd be no such rescue for these people. They will be utterly and completely destroyed. Verse 10, this shall they have for their pride because they reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. 
Pride comes before destruction, doesn't it? For their pride and lifting themselves up against the people of God, they will face destruction. That should be a great warning to the wicked in our day. Boy, the wicked in our day are lifting themselves up against the church, aren't they? Criticizing, hating. I was watching a, a program the other day. It's a very left-wing liberal program called The Young Turks. You guys ever watched that before? Vile people on there. And uh, just railing against Christianity. Talking about this person. She was, she said, I was standing in line and these people were insulting. And she names all these other religions. And she was so upset that this guy was insulting other religions. You know why she hated him so much? He was a Christian or claimed to be a Christian. Was speaking bad about other religions. See, the other religions didn't bother her. It was the Christian that bothered her. Then she was on the rail about how Christians believe in a fairy tale God and a book of magic spells and how she rejects our book of magic. Funny, because you were very sympathetic towards the Muslims. They too have a book of magic. You were kind of sympathetic towards the Mormons. They too have a book of magic. Oh, that's okay. You know why? Because in her heart she knows those books aren't true. They rail against the Bible because they know that it's true. They rail against Christ because they know that he's true. They rail against Christians because Christians are in the image of Christ. That's the problem. But the wicked better watch out. Lifting themselves up against God's people only brings destruction. Only brings destruction. We've seen it all throughout history, time and time again. By the way, remember all the persecution in the New Testament? Can I point out to you that all the Caesars are dead now? All of the leaders of the children of Israel, they're dead. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them. They don't exist anymore. There's no more Sanhedrin. There's no more Roman Senate. There's no more Caesar. But Christians are still around, aren't they? In greater numbers. There's more Christians on earth today than there were people on earth in the time of the New Testament. God will always lay waste to his enemies and his people will go on. And will, I'm, not, I'm not worried. I'm not worried about communist China. I'm not worried about Russia and Putin. I'm not worried about the Democrats or the Republicans or secularism or liberalism. I'm not worried about any of that stuff. You know why? Because of the Caesars. Because of the popes. Yes, there's still a pope today, but he's not powerful politically like he was when he's having people burned to the stake. There's no more power to kill and take life like they used to have. Power over the kings. The British monarchy used to put Christians to death, but today the British monarchy is nothing more than a figurehead. And Christians are still around, still preaching the gospel. You know why? Because God will always destroy those who lift themselves up against his people. Never be afraid of the enemy, church. Never be afraid of the enemy. God will lay waste to his enemies in his time. I'm sure there's a lot of people in the book of Acts who thought the church was losing. How are we going to survive? We're going to be wiped out. There's so few of us and so many of them. 2,000 years later, they're all gone. And Christians have multiplied exponentially. There's more Christianity in China today 
than there ever was before the communists came into power. You know why? It grows the church. It's true, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Do you know why Christianity is spreading in places like India, Pakistan, throughout the Middle East? Because Christians are persecuted in those places. Saddam Hussein used to rail against the Christians. He's in hell today. Hugo Chavez persecuted Christians. Fidel Castro persecuted Christians. They've all been laid waste today. And it will continue to happen as time goes on. Never be afraid. We have no enemy that God cannot overcome. One day, all of our enemies that we see today will be in the dust heap of history, and Christians will still be meeting, still be preaching, still be evangelizing, and still be loving Jesus. If Jesus tarries 2,000 years from now, there'll be more Christians than there are today, and all the enemies that we face today will be laid to waste. And there'll be new enemies, and God will lay them to waste too. Pride comes before destruction. Verse 11, the Lord will be terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship him, every one from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. Let's break this one down a bit. The Lord will be terrible unto them, that is, to the Moabites and the Ammonites, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. Notice, they're called gods of the earth as opposed to the God of heaven. These gods, such as Dagon, Baal, and Molech, will be starved of their worshipers. Remember, these aren't just empty idols. Behind every false god is a demon. I promise you. That's my worldview. Behind every false god, behind Molech, behind Baal, behind Dagon, were demons masquerading as God. These aren't just empty wooden idols people were worshiping. They were worshiping demons. And by the way, they're still doing it today. We may call it something else. It may be secularism. It may be false science. It may be whatever, whatever you want to call it. Behind it are demons. When people go into the abortion clinic to kill their babies, they are sacrificing them to demons. Yes, it looks sterile. It looks like a healthcare clinic. It looks like a nice building in an unassuming neighborhood. It's a place of demon worship. When our government legalizes gay marriage and makes the White House the colors of the rainbow, they're worshiping demons. Mormons are worshiping demons. Jehovah's Witnesses are worshiping demons. Roman Catholics are worshiping demons. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are gods out there who are not the true God. They are false gods. And the God of heaven will lay waste to them as well. And men shall worship him, everyone from his place. No more would they come to Jerusalem to worship. The temple will be destroyed. They'll worship from wherever they are. We worship today from Lomita, California. Aren't you glad you don't have to get on a boat and go to Jerusalem to worship? Boy, that'd be a pain in the neck. Or get on an airplane and fly across the ocean. We worship right where we are. This looks forward to a time when there would be no temple, but men would worship from their own lands. God would not be confined to Jerusalem forever. He scattered his people in judgment, and they were to teach others in the land where they were going. That's part of the reason of the captivity was he spreads them out to the other nations, and they're supposed to carry the knowledge of the true God with them. Some did, some did not. 
Even all the isles of the heathen, every nation will come into the church and worship the one true God. What a wonderful truth, isn't it? Every people, tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping the one true God. Can you imagine that in heaven one day? Standing, I'm an American standing next to a Philistine, standing next to a Hebrew, and uh, oh, down there is a Ammonite. What a terrible people the Ammonites were, and the Moabites, children of, of incest, haters of God. But there's going to be somebody there from their tribe. You know how I know? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. Those who are haters of God, worshipers of false gods, Rahab's going to be there, a Canaanite prostitute redeemed by the God of heaven. Think about that. What a wonderful and beautiful truth. Ruth, a Moabite, in the family line of Jesus, redeemed by the God of heaven, worshiping today, right now, the God of heaven. God will lay waste to his enemies, and he'll convert some of them. Verse 12, ye Ethiopians also, ye should be slain by my sword. The Cushites were the farthest inhabited place to the south that Israel knew about. They were a wicked nation. The sword of God's vengeance would reach even to the farthest regions. That's what the prophet's saying here. The farthest south that Israel knew about was the Cushite Empire. So he says the, the, when he says things like, uh, ye Ethiopians also shall be slain by my sword, the message to Israel is to the farthest reaches of the world, God's judgment will fall. Verse 13, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. God will stretch out his hand to the north and destroy Assyria. They had previously ruled much of the known world and were a fearful people. Nineveh will be a desolation. This was the headquarters of the Assyrian monarchy. It was situated, as you remember our study in Jonah, it was situated on the Tigris River. It was a land full of water full of springs, full of rivers. The mighty Tigris River flowed just outside of its walls. And God says, you know what? I'm going to make you like a dry wilderness. Everything good will be taken away. Every natural resource destroyed. By the way, if you believe in global war, climate change, listen, I do. I'm a, I don't deny climate change. I deny the reasons for it. I think they're wrong about the reasons for it. I think it's God's judgment on a proud and arrogant and sinful people. God's taking away our natural resources as punishment for our sin. He does that. Oh, we're not getting the rain we used to get. It's true. In the Bible, that's a regular judgment of God to withhold rain, to withhold crops. Food shortages are a judgment of God. So when they come on the news, they tell you about all the, oh my goodness, the weather and the driest year on, and the crops and the food shortage. Say, yes, yes, repent and return to the Lord. That's why we have these problems that we have. That's why we have the confusion that we have. That's why boys don't know their girls and girls don't know their boys. Because God is judging our sin. Repent. Repent. Verse 14. And flocks shall lie down in the midst of her. All the beasts of the nations, both the cormorant and the bittern, shall lodge in the upper lintels of it. Their voice shall sing 
in the windows. Desolation shall be in the threshold, for he will uncover the cedar work. The desolation will be so complete that only animals can live in these places again. They are more deserving of it than we are. You ever think about that? The only thing in this, in this universe that disobeys God is man. Clouds do what he commands. Jesus commanded the wind and the, the wind and the waves, and they obeyed him immediately. Animals obey. What happened when Balaam's donkey saw the angel standing in the way? He turned out of the way. He turned aside. The only thing that disobeys God is us. The animals are more deserving of those lands than we are as people. We sin against a holy God over and over and over again. Verse 15, this is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly. I said in her heart, I am and there is none besides me. How has she become a desolation? A place for beasts to lie down in. Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. The city that once rejoiced in her sin will be laid bare, become a home to wild beasts, and those who walk by and see her ruins will shake their head at her wickedness and say, they should have known better. Listen, one day people are going to talk about America that way. They should have known better. Boy, boy, were they foolish. People will shake their head at those in hell one day and say, boy, were they foolish. They loved their sin. They loved their sin. Think about that passage in Isaiah. I think it's 14, about the fall of Satan. What does he say? Those who see thee will narrowly look upon thee and say, is this the one that made the earth a trip? Is that it? Is that it? I think one day the righteous will look at the wicked as they are cast in the lake of fire and say, is that why you perished eternally over that sin? Over that? You love your sin so much. What we've seen tonight is a visual representation of the hatred of God for our sin. God hates our sin. God says, I will lay you waste and only animals will live there. I will uproot you so that no one even knows you were there. Boy, God hates sin. God swore by his own name, I will remove you from the land. He was so hot against their sin. And what did they do? They boasted themselves. <laughs> we're God's people. We're safe. We're okay. We're in. We're good. There's a great deal of professing Christianity today, which lives in sin and boasts itself. I'm in. Got my card punched. I'm on the heaven train. I can do what I want. I got grace. Be very careful. Humble yourself. Confess your sin. Walk humbly with God. Make sure your heart is right with God. So when God's judgment falls on the land, you're hidden. In the only safe place there is, the Lord Jesus Christ. Though God is patient, the wicked will be utterly destroyed. The wicked nation, the wicked person will be uprooted and purged from the world that God has created. Those who love and worship God look forward to a day when there is no temple of stone, 
but they will be the temple of God and worship him from where they are. That's today, folks. We worship God from where we are. We are the temple of God. He dwells in us, with us. In closing, let me quote to you. You don't, you don't, you don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. John 4, 21 and 23. The Bible says, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh. We shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Make sure your heart's right with God. God hates sin. And God will punish sin wherever he finds it. Even though David humbled himself in Psalm 51, he still faced grievous punishment for his sin. His baby died. His son raped his daughter. His other son murdered that son. Then that son led a revolt against him and ran him out of the, the city and the palace. Listen, confessing our sin, humbling ourselves, is not a guarantee that God won't judge us. That's why we saw in that psalm last week where David's pleading with the Lord, don't judge me. Forgive me. Show mercy to me. Confessing our sin is not a, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card with God. If we're going to sin, there are consequences to our sin. But the Lord is merciful. He is kind. He is patient. And the sacrifices he loves are a broken and a contrite heart. Make sure you're walking with the Lord. Make sure sin is not enticing you. Because one day, probably very soon, God's judgment is going to fall on our nation in such a way that it will not be turned back. The only safe place to be is in Christ because God the Father delights in the Son. And he'll not punish those in whom he delights. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. These things are written for our warning that we would not love sin, we would not boast ourselves in our sin, not delight ourselves in sin, but Lord, you set your love upon us, undeserving as we are. Help us cling closely to you, Lord. Help us to love you in return for the love that you've given to us, the grace where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Boy, I'm a big sinner. But where sin in my life abounded, grace was greater than my sin. Help us never to live in or walk in or joy in those things for which you died. Lord Jesus, draw our hearts to you and away from this world, away from sin. May you be our delight. May you be our joy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, and conform us more and more each day into the image of Christ. Revive your people. Turn us and we'll be turned. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time now together. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.